Welcome to the Rationalish Podcast. I'm your co-host Morgan Wack, and I'm with the impregnable Eddie Matthews. Welcome back. Hey, Morgan, what was that you were telling me about? Uh, you were saying that Green Book was the best movie you'd seen in the last 15 years. I mean... Like, since... The best American film since Citizen Kane. I remember that's exactly what I said. Um, so you must have felt really good, right? I thought it last just perfectly Sunday. encapsulated race relations in the United States. <laughs> right. I remember verbatim, that's what you were saying. You're like... Eddie, you have to see this new movie. It's called Green Book, and it perfectly encapsulates race relations. In the That's United it. States. I was like, you watch There's that, and you time. get it. Somebody could come from out of the country, and that would be basically the, what I would prime them with, and uh, they'd be ready to go. Right. Right. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I'm looking forward to checking it out. And now that we've got that out of the way, yeah, it's uh, we should really get on it so we can uh, we can be on the same page. You know, it's uh, really a, a background to oppression. It's definitely not. It's definitely yeah. not a sanitized version of uh, race relations in the U.S. That's not what it is at all. Who's to say? Who's to say? So. This is uh, kind of a special edition. Do you want to explain the uh, why we're coming at you today? Absolutely. So we have decided that in between our longer Rationalish podcasts, we can bring a few smaller, not smaller subjects, but things that we just don't have as much to say about or possibly there's not as much information available. Um, so we're calling these Rationalish Debriefs. And they should be around 15, 20 minutes. So, you know, you've got your short little commute. You're on your way to work and you are you need that kick. You forgot your coffee. Just plug in some, some Morgan and Eddie debriefs and you're good to go. Sounds good mm-hmm. to me. And so uh, what's the uh, subject for today? Yeah, we're going to talk about Venezuela because it's been in the news a lot. And hopefully this is just a good... Uh, little way for you into it without having to get too kind of deep into Venezuelan history. Um, so I'm going to, we're going to put a link in the description of this to this box video uh, that kind of explains in a nice succinct seven minute and 30 second, the collapse of Venezuela and how we kind of got to this point. Um, so a little background, Hugo Chavez is the president of Venezuela since 1999, um, so for about 15 years until 2014. Uh, and he's the, a populist leader. He's really popular with the poor. Um, part of that reason is that the oil price spiked during his uh, administration. And so Venezuela being one of, I think, uh, per capita, like the most oil-rich country in the world, um, their economy is heavily dependent on their oil reserves. And so when it spiked uh, in his administration, it was really great because it meant that he could spend billions of dollars on social welfare welfare programs and kind of consolidate that support um, among the poor of Venezuela and you know continue his popularity. Um, but the problem with that was that it was contingent upon oil prices staying high and so uh, the economy just wasn't diversified enough. And so it was uh, too much uh, overbearing on those oil prices. So inevitably, when the oil price fell, 
uh, it was after, you know, his handpicked successor, Maduro, took over. And uh, they were just kind of scrambling. And so they didn't kind of curb the amount of spending on the social welfare programs. And so it wasn't feasible for them to continue to fund those. So just massive inflation happened. And then they basically rigged it so that they had two different um, currency values. The one that they would kind of trade um, amid the elites of the country and other countries, which was like the currency was like 10 to 1 US dollars. Um, and then what the majority, the vast majority of the country was operating on an inflation of like 12,000 to one. And not only that, but it was worse because the, the government had a monopoly on kind of the food, um, imports. And so they would like literally sell to the black market at the 12,000 to one price when they got it for the 10, 10 to one. So you can imagine just how much social unrest, um, that was going to do. And then um, there's basically uh, he pushed out the National Assembly, which was uh, ruled by the opposition through a Supreme Court action and then just like protests erupted. But then the damage was um, kind of already fostered through that and just has been fomenting for the last couple of years. So he held this uh, election for the National Constituent Assembly, which was you know, vastly uh, designed to be under his control to replace the National Assembly of the opposition. Um, and then there's just been massive protests. And on that election, only like 3 million people, or th they estimate 3.7 million people in the entire country voted on it. So it's just like a vast minority of the country even voted on the uh, basically the equivalent of their Congress. So there, there you go. There's a good overview. I mean, I think we, we jumped right into it there. Eddie, do you mind telling us where Venezuela is? So we, we can start off with, uh, with some yeah. lowball questions here. Uh, it's at the top of South America. So the very kind of the hat of South America. <laughs> well done. They call it that. That's what it's called. Uh, don't, don't check that. Don't Precisely. fact check that. But <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. So just to give some, some more overview on what's been happening recently – the head of the National Assembly that um, was replaced by Maduro has been has come out and, and claimed that he is the rightful leader of Venezuela, that he is actually the one who had the most democratic support in the country based on voter polls and and other because of the fact that he is part of a representative body. And he's been supported by the United States, a few other Latin American countries, some of the European countries, um, but not China or Russia, very importantly, who are members of, of the UN Security Council. Um, and so he has kind of allied himself with the U.S. in that he has basically brought aid to the border and almost uh, invited coup attempts from the inside of the country. And despite this, Maduro, even though he has very little public support, has the military on his side, which should keep him in power unless something dramatic happens in the near future. Yeah, I think uh, that's an important point. So it's interesting because that's what you describe as the inflection point that we're at right now because uh, Juan Guaido has kind of risen up as kind of the people's 
choice or at least claiming to be the people's choice and then having shown there to be seemingly much more plurality of support from him within the people outside of the government than for Maduro. Absolutely. Um, and in the U.S., I think the U.S. was the first to, to recognize him as the rightful president. Yeah, well, if you're, we're looking at this from a U.S. perspective, which is interesting, so we can get into it a little bit here. It's a few of the aides that quit the White House positions last year said that Trump was openly questioning whether or not we should invade Venezuela as early as July 2018. So this has been on his to-do list for quite some time before this kind of oh, wow. outrage had really even struck a chord with the, the U.S. public or the, the international community. And he was mm. uh, he was shut down then, and he, he seems to continue to be shut down in his quest for intervention in South America, um, which, given the U.S. history of intervention in that region, is probably for the best, I think, a political solution. It's an yeah. interesting... Go ahead. Yeah, it's an interesting thought because uh, my read of... Trump foreign policy, I guess, is kind of two-pronged until this mm. point, right? It was very kind of non-interventionalist in the Middle East and wanting to pull out of Syria, wanting to pull out of Afghanistan, wanting to pull out of Iraq. Um, but then it was very kind of proactive in North Korea, where the Trump, uh, where the president currently is. Um, and so it seemed like I don't know. Well, to, at least to me, it seemed like Trump was doing a pretty good job in in those areas, aside from having said that we defeated ISIS and then, you know, his own, you know, General Mattis, like, quitting. Well, maybe not because of that, but that being one of the factors um, under his decision to quit. Um, but I feel like, I don't know, Trump was has been handling North Korea. I mean, we'll we'll see how it goes. But better than the Obama administration in terms of like, he's actually engaging with the problem and there might actually be a solution coming out of North Korea. And it seems like with Syria, he had, I don't know, maybe kept the trajectory of what Obama was doing, but maybe even was a little bit more adept until he was pulling everybody out. What do you think about that? Uh, I mean, these are a couple of different issues. I think he's consistent in his inconsistency. I have very low hope yeah. for any sort of actual... I feel like they'll probably come to some sort of deal like they did last time, and it won't be held through um, on North Korea's side. In Syria, uh, I mean, I think that there was few prospects for the U.S. there, but he's also kind of hung the Kurds out to dry. And the reason that Obama had a few times and decided to stop saying that they would pull out troops is because it gives the opposition forces a de deadline that they know they just have to hold out to a certain point in time when the U.S. forces withdraw. Not that it's a bad thing, um, yeah. but it's uh, it's definitely a more complicated story. I think the interesting thing is that the reason why he would think that intervention in Venezuela is acceptable, but strongmen and dictators who base their rule on undemocratic uh, votes and, and rigged voter schemes elsewhere are allies mm. is an interesting mm. point. I think from my reading of the situation, a lot of it goes back to the voter base in, in Florida. Um, Ricky Rubio mm. has been 
the the number one supporter of this cause of getting Guaido into uh, Venezuelan office, um, and it just so happens that the most Venezuelan Americans live in Florida in a swing state, um, and that oh, uh, they the rest of the Latin American citizens in, in and and immigrants in Florida are sympathetic to that cause. Um, not that it's wrong. I think that it's very obvious that Maduro is not right to lead the country, but it is odd. I think the other thing that plays into it is the fact that Venezuela is seen as a communist country, and it is kind of this Cold War mindset where it's okay to intervene in areas where we see them as kind of relics, these like antiquated uh, foreign policy games, when really... The new Cold War is more about democracy versus dictatorship rather than any sort of ideological battle. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing. I think Russia's support for Venezuela is very similar to their support for other communist-leaning countries. But in this time around, it's more about China and Russia supporting dictatorial countries rather than democracies. And that is almost more dangerous because yeah. we have this asymmetric Cold War. You don't really have the same type of balancing that you had when it was... a uh, do do uh, not a unipolar state, but a bipolar state. Um, it's like a it's like a diplomatic proxy war. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that it, when you're you have a foreign policy agenda like Donald Trump that is so scattershot, it's hard to see any wins or losses coming out of it. Which you know is a strategy. Um, mm. It's not. I don't think any mm. even in North Korea, which has kind of been his go to foreign policy intervention. Um, I don't think anyone expects it to work out, so I don't think it'll play against him if it doesn't. Um, and I also don't think he'll yeah. be given any credit if he pulls something off. Um, and that's kind of by design. He has definitely relegated the foreign sphere. And, I mean, you can see that by defunding all the State Department and uh, getting rid of Rex Tillerson mm-hmm. and all that. So, it's yeah, it's an interesting, um, yeah, an, an interesting policy on his behalf to think that Venezuela is this kind of standalone, isolated, rogue state when there are a number of countries in the region and elsewhere that are propped up on just as flimsy democratic grounds. Yeah. I mean, uh, may, I mean, this is speculation, but maybe part of the thinking is like, well, why not get the lion's share of our oil from Venezuela instead of Saudi Arabia and not have to deal with all the Saudi Arabia human rights abuses? Yeah, I mean, uh, I <laughs> both countries are very similar, which gets to the root of the the, the hypocrisy. Um, right, right. Cool, because Saudi Arabia also way too kind of dependent on the, their oil reserves. For their yeah, oil. I mean, they're both... So you could say both countries suffer from what's called kind of the Dutch disease resource curse. In Venezuela, when oil prices skyrocketed, you have a disconnect between the people and the government. Who The people in, in Venezuela is, is the richest country in South America at one point in time. They're extremely well-educated. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit different. I think that's why we see so many protests in, in compared to other countries where there never really was this dip and the population was never really able to grow into a democratic position. Um, and I do think that's why yeah. the population has been able to resist what is pretty assuredly a strong, robust dictatorial system um, in a way that they haven't been elsewhere. Um, And I mean, that's a good sign for the future. I think that the foundations, the democratic foundations and the political inclusive structures are there. 
for a post-Maduro uh, kind of revitalization of, of the democracy in Venezuela. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's yeah. no guarantee that it won't get worse before it gets better. Well, because it did sound like they had separation of powers, mm-hmm. you know, until Maduro destroyed that with pushing out the Supreme Court justices that he didn't like. And then the Supreme Court basically, you know, uh, taking away all the power of the National Assembly, which was also the I mean, that's the, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it, that's the problem with oil, though. If you have oil to pay off all of your cronies in the military, then you don't, right. it doesn't matter how well educated your population is, you can behind the scenes rig deals and. Do you want to, do you want to real quick just chat a little bit about why we see dictators falling into the all the same cycles of like uh, paying off their cronies instead of giving that money to the people like why they always make that decision yeah we can link a couple um articles in in the in the description as well about the selector theory which is essentially what you're getting at it's kind of a rational um approach to understanding why things like the resource curse and countries dependent on certain types of of support fall into these populist uh dictator kind of violent traps and the main thing is that there's always somebody to replace you. You any money that you give away to the people, let's say you want to promote healthcare initiatives or education initiatives, leaves money that you can't pay off the military or your key advisors or people who run the oil fields to stay off. Exactly. Of Q. Not even to just stave off a queue, but just to to keep yourself in power. And those yeah. key supporters know that if they back the opposition candidate, they're going to receive a larger share of the spoils. So when countries where there yeah. is not – the money is not necessarily coming from the people in the form of taxes or other sorts of inputs, the number of people you have to pay off essentially becomes far lower and they can coordinate within one another because there's so few people. So in a democracy – at least ideally, you don't have this problem because the people you have to pay off is the entire country. And the best way to do that is just by promising, following through with your campaign promises or at least attempting to. But when you only have to provide, yeah. Well, I think that's a, yeah, I think that's a good place to to leave it. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. Yeah. And And I appreciated uh, all the the people who reached out and and told us to fix our freaking audio. So uh, hopefully... (laughs) Hopefully this will be better. Oh, and, dear. Uh, yeah, and then we'll, we'll see you next time on the Rationalist Podcast.